oftentimes we hear the term it takes a village with reference to raising children, but maybe it also takes the village to ensure good governance. Today on Shack Shack, we have Dr. Christina Hines, University Lecturer in Politics and International Relations, to talk about her recently published book, Civil Society Organizations, Governance, and the Caribbean Community. This may not be your usual bedtime reading, but definitely worth the effort. Welcome, Dr. Hines, and thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. So the first thing that jumped out at me was that it's dedicated to your son, Aziz. And in the acknowledgments, you mentioned the support you received regarding childcare, which helped you to be able to complete this work. Um, there's been some research on the challenges many women face in academia that result in lower publishing rates, which can have an impact on career advancement, sometimes referred to as the motherhood penalty. So maybe you can share some thoughts on that. Oh, definitely. Well, the motherhood penalty is quite interesting, especially at the University of the West Indies Cave Hill campus. In my faculty and my department in particular, there are quite a number of women. And this really differentiates us in some ways from some other university campuses and departments that I've seen that tend to be very male dominated. But mm -hmm. even so, the responsibilities for care work that women are expected to undertake, no matter what career they're in, still exists very much at the university level. And, you know, sometimes these are responsibilities that we put on ourselves that we may not have to, but because of how we've been socialized and expectations that we have of ourselves, um, you know, women may take on a lot of childcare, household, other types of caring responsibilities as well for parents, for extended family members, brothers and sisters. And these things take time. And for research, one of the things you certainly do need is time. You need time to conduct your research, to think about it, to write and rewrite, to run data. Mm -hmm. It's very time consuming. So when there are these additional demands on your time, it does tend to slow down your progress, your rate of publication, if you want to sleep, that is. <laughs> I think we all want to sleep. <laughs> we do all want to sleep, but sometimes, you know, when you're finished all of this, the only time that's really left is the time for sleeping. So mm -hmm. I think women do need a lot of support. And I should also say that some men do need this kind of support too, if they have parents that they're taking care of mm -hmm. and for those who really are more hands-on when it comes to childcare. But from what I can see at the university, women can do quite well. But when we come to the more senior ranks at the university, women tend to be less and less visible. And okay. we certainly could attribute this to, you know, all of these other responsibilities that women tend to have. Yeah, and I guess too, I mean, in the current situation where there's like other homeschooling responsibilities along with, you know, everything else that you mentioned, I assume that, you know, women's research is likely to, you know, plummet even further from that perspective. Yeah, definitely. A lot has changed in academia. So I wouldn't say that it is impossible for women to advance. I think many universities and research institutions are becoming aware of this and are attempting to provide things such as childcare and other forms of support 
Mm-hmm. At Cape yeah. we're not quite there yet. Hopefully, we are getting there. Um, other university campuses in the UE system are there, such as St. Augustine, for instance. Mm-hmm. But okay. it is a challenge, and it really does speak to you know extended work-life balance kinds of things, and even inside of the same university. Women do tend to take on those kinds of caring roles in the workplace. Yeah, so that that's true. There are, there are activities that you do at work that are not part of your job, but are an extension of that caring role. Mm-hmm. A lot of yeah. volunteer activities, somebody has a birthday, they have a staff function, <laughs> and women tend to be the ones who show up for those kinds of things. And again, it is a demand on your time. Yeah. And when you're spending time doing that, you're not spending it doing your research. Fair enough. So um, let's talk about the book. Uh, how long has this been in the making and what has you know, your experience been in, in writing it? The book was in the making a real long time. That's the truth. (laughs) A lot of it, a lot of the inspiration from it came from my PhD thesis. And I completed my PhD in 2007. So that is to tell you how long in the making, if we were to start from, I guess, the inception of an idea. But when I did my thesis, I focused on civil society involvement in trade negotiations. Mm -hmm. And... I wanted to move away from that focus of trade negotiations because it's quite narrow okay. and it also limits the type of organizations that you tend to get an opportunity to look at. So, so when I talk about civil society organizations, here we're talking about voluntary organizations and these can range from community groups, business representative organizations, women's groups, trade unions. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at trade negotiations, the types of organizations involved tend to be more limited then if we look at governance more broadly, and then also if we think about how our countries work, then, you know, this is a wider governance mm-hmm. issue. So around, I would say about 2009-10 is when I started to move in the direction of focusing on governance more broadly. But I have to say that for me, life intervened a lot in this process. Mm-hmm. So although... In 2009-10 is when I wanted to actually start writing the book. I didn't really start doing this in a dedicated way until about maybe 2017. Mm -hmm. You know, I was doing research bits and pieces along the way, but I had a small child at the time, one year old or so, and it really was quite challenging to balance it to find a way to balance it properly to deal with my career which was quite quite new at the time as well Mm -hmm. and to work out how to balance all that different stuff and I'm also somebody that does things outside of work so that also is a time demand as you know we play hockey (laughs) and that that is a demand on your time and I do other things as well so you know maybe I was not the most focused when it came to writing the book but I would say Around 2017 is when I really dedicated time to finishing it, to Mm -hmm. making sure that the research I had done previously, I updated and getting it published within two or three years was my target. Okay. Well, I guess we can consider that a labor of love. It was a labor for sure. (laughs) So, I mean, you mentioned that about civil society organizations, which, you know, the book is based on, you know, my interpretation 
NLCM, my interpretation is that the key assertion in this work is that civil society organizations, like you mentioned, like environmental groups, charities, and even sports clubs have played a significant role in Barbados and the region, filling social, economic, and political gaps. As I said, that's my interpretation, but maybe you can break that down for us a bit more. You are right. Your interpretation is what I was trying to get across. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's perfectly accurate. These, if you think about how our countries function, especially now we have COVID, right? Yeah. And if we had to leave it to government to do everything, there are so many things that would not get done. And this has always been the case in this region. Small groups of people, they could be community groups, it could be even groups of friends that may then grow from just a group of friends doing something to then encompassing their community. They have helped each other do things to fill these gaps that the government is unable to or sometimes unwilling to fill. Mm -hmm. So okay. if we look at environmental groups, they do a lot of significant work in things like keeping a beach clean. Yeah. Picking up garbage, protecting animals. So these are things that organizations have always done. People have done things like help women take care of children with after school clubs for mm -hmm. reading. And so all of these are things that organizations have done for a very long time, especially in societies like ours, where if we think of the colonial legacy, a lot of the population was not taken into consideration in framing government policy. Yeah. The government's emphasis was on running a plantation economy. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was not so much on the social side. So people tended to take care of this in groups on their own. Even yeah. businesses have done this. We see this in the union movement. They take care of things on their own. But the question is, if they do all of this important work, why aren't they very involved in decision-making processes for mm -hmm. the country? Well, I think that's a big question. Yeah, so I mean, that, that kind of takes me to, you know, my, my other question, which is, you know, there's a kind of certain sentiment, um, a certain sentiment among citizens that, you know, they can feel like their contribution to and participation in governance is kind of relegated to five seconds in a polling booth every five years. So do you think yeah. that if these civil society organizations have a space in the governance process that it could, you know, remedy some of this kind of feeling? I think it could. I think there are some spaces that are being created. What I think the problem is, is that the spaces tend to be very managed. So mm -hmm. we have something in Barbados called the social partnership. In yep. the social partnership, the government decides who is involved in these processes. And they also decide the types of issues that are going to be discussed. They frame the discussion and the debate and they decide who gets to be involved. Mm -hmm. Primarily the social partnership includes labor, and business representative organizations and other entities can be invited as required. So it's a very managed process. Um, there is also, there's also another entity that the government created recently. I can't remember what, what they call it. The, I can't remember. But it's supposed to focus on the organizations that operate in the social sphere. Okay. So, and this is under the new government, the Barbados Labor Party government that came in to power in 2018. So this is a relatively new framework where there is this collaboration, but again, it tends to be quite managed. 
And I think beyond that, beyond focusing on groups, people also need to feel that they can be involved in these processes as well. That it's not mm-hmm. certain organizations. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, what do you see as the best place for these civil society organizations or how do you see these organizations making um, this kind of contribution? What, what do you think that would look like? I think a lot of the organizations try already. So they will contact different ministries about particular issues. I think that this needs to be handled in a more systematic way so that when decisions are being made about things like education policy, child care, um, changes in labor legislation, environmental matters, that these types of entities need to be included during the decision-making process mm-hmm. and not left until the end, end stages yeah. when you know you have a kind of preformed approach or strategy or range of strategies that you then present to these groups and ask them for their feedback. It, it assumes that these, these entities and these organizations are not specialists and mm-hmm. often they really are specialists because they are the ones doing a lot of work on the ground in these areas. So I think there needs to be a closer relationship, but that asks for our governments to make some changes to how they themselves operate. So how ministries operate. And there's not a lot of flexibility in ministries that would allow them to do this as readily as I would like, for instance. And I'm sure that other organizations, civil society organizations across the region would like to be more readily included in these types of processes. Yeah. So um, the other thing is, you know, these days we can't talk about engagement of the public really in any form without considering social media. So um, what are your thoughts on the use of social media with respect to reaching and engaging the population on key issues? And I mean, in some cases, even influencing elections. I think social media should be used and it is increasingly being used. I think it needs to be used in ways that help to include people, to provide them with information that they need so that they can be involved in processes and not to confuse them or to try and trick them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think that social media is used to try and sell a particular agenda or approach to gloss over some areas that the government or some other government agency wants people not to be too curious about. And I think there's a danger in that. So there's a danger in using social media as a propaganda machinery rather than for genuine engagement. But I think it is important because a lot of us live on social media nowadays. Government websites also need a lot of work. I think at least now in Barbados, the government is doing a lot better with its social media, in particular the GIS, which has always been quite good, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But some of the websites are really difficult yeah. to navigate, Definitely not revamp. helpful, outdated, and those things need to be connected to the social media as well. So you should be able to easily move from a Facebook page to the website and access forms or information or the things that you need to first of all use government services but also to engage in decision making to think about policy and what is happening in your country and by extension your life yeah and i mean sometimes 
to be honest, it feels like the flow of information is a bit one way, you know, that oh, yeah. you're consuming, but you're not sure if anybody is listening. So I don't know if you feel maybe there's some, you know, things that they can do on, on that and not only pushing information to the public, but maybe receiving information from the public. Yes, I agree. I know there, over the last about decade, there has been a movement towards a lot of town hall meetings, but the town hall meetings tend to feel quite one way as well. So mm -hmm. there are presentations and then people get the chance to ask questions after, as opposed to being more um, participatory types of engagements when there is an effort to really listen to people and not just listen to them because you have ears, mm -hmm. but listen to them and take their input seriously and consider it. And I think we can see the same thing happening when you move these uh, town hall meetings to an online platform. Yeah. Just moving something to an online platform doesn't make it interactive. It can still be very one way. And I think there does need to be an effort to make some of these things interactive, to allow people to receive feedback, maybe to hear the reasons why certain things might not be considered. Yeah. And I, I think our governments are trying to be very fair to them. They are trying, but there's still a lot that needs to be done. And I also think they could try harder. Well, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I feel we probably can all try a bit harder. So um, the other thing in your book, you also mentioned that the Caribbean has affected and been affected by complex external occurrences. And I see that the Caribbean Studies Association, of which you're the program chair, has recently run a webinar series on the contribution of Caribbean culture on social justice, not only in the region, but also in the U.S., so maybe you could tell us a bit about the association and this particular webinar series. Okay, well, Caribbean Studies Association is 45 years old. It is the leading multidisciplinary association that brings together scholars and professionals who do research on the Caribbean. And when I say the Caribbean here, I mean the Caribbean in the broadest sense possible. All the linguistic categories, and we would even include some parts of South America, Central mm -hmm. America, that border the Caribbean Sea. And some people would even include parts of the United States, Florida, and so on. We could include in some ways in the Caribbean and Caribbean studies. This webinar series is really quite timely because this month, the month of June, in the United States of America is Caribbean American Heritage Month. And also okay. with all of the things that are happening in the United States right now, we can look at Black Lives Matter, for instance. Mm -hmm. Very prominent. You know, it has brought yeah. out a lot of discussions and conversations. And if we look back at this historically, what we will see is that Caribbean people have been involved in these kinds of civil rights, anti-racism movements from certainly the start of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. We can look at Marcus Garvey and his involvement in the United States of America Amy Ashwood Garvey, his wife as well, former, one of his wives, first wife, was very actively involved, not just in the United States, but also in the first Pan-African conference, which was held, I think, in 1919 in London. Okay. And there are many Caribbean people that have been involved in so many things that have happened in the United States of America and around the world in terms of highlighting social justice issues even politicians, 
we know recently in the same social media, I see people have started sending around information about Shirley Chisholm. Mm -hmm. And she was, um, she ran for, or attempted to run for the presidency in the United States of America. So black woman, the first to try and do so, the first to gain a congressional seat in the United States of America. And she is actually a Bajan. Oh, really? Oh, oh I definitely. Barbadian parents raised, <laughs> yeah, raised for uh, the early part of her life in Barbados. And if you look at some of her interviews, she talks about how important Barbados was to forming her views about herself, her self-worth, and mm -hmm, making her mm -hmm. able to champion certain things. So this connection, and we know how Caribbean people move. We yeah. migrate. We're everywhere. So, <laughs> exactly. So the first and second generations have been very involved in these types of movements. So that when we say Black Lives Matter in the United States or anywhere else, we are connected to this movement. We have helped to fuel this movement. And our literal brothers and sisters are affected mm -hmm. by this because of this migration. Yeah. Well, that, that definitely is interesting, and I definitely learned something there. Um, so we definitely unpacked, uh, you know, quite a bit in this episode, but I guess I want to ask, as a political scientist, as a political observer, what is your vision for Barbados and the region? Oh, wow. I know. Big question. No pressure. <laughs> I would love to see a region... I would love to see Barbados and the Caribbean be a lot more transparent. Mm -hmm. There are these discussions about corruption across the region, and there is corruption here and a lot of places. But there is also a lot of suspicion of corruption because we don't have enough transparency. Mm -hmm. We cannot access information to find out what is happening with our government. And this also affects our ability to participate in decision-making processes. If you don't have information, you can't really participate that well. You also can't be a watchdog. You cannot mm -hmm. yeah. assess how your government is doing very well if you do not have information. And it's not just the information that the government wants to give you. It's the information that you want to get from the government about the operations that your tax dollars are funding. Everything the government is doing is funded with taxpayer dollars or debt, True. which will then be paid with taxpayer dollars. So I would love to see more transparency. I would also love for us to have some serious discussions about race in this region and class. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. to stop pretending that we all live in peace and harmony and we are good right. because we aren't. And there are a lot of things that go unsaid and are not challenged and are not addressed that continue to stifle us because we don't properly talk about these issues yeah. in the region and deal with them as well. Yeah. And I guess we can't progress if, as you said, we don't talk about them and don't deal with them. It kind of stifles us. It certainly does, I think. Yeah, so I want to say congratulations again on this key milestone with your book. And, I, you. and, you know, lastly, where can people get the book and can we expect another book? Well, the first question is the easier one. You can get <laughs> the book. It's at the University of the West Indies Bookstore, Cave Hill Campus. It's also available as an ebook on Palgrave Macmillan's website. Mm -hmm. 
it's available on amazon.com as well both in the electronic format and the physical format right now it's just in hardback which means okay. that it's somewhat expensive but i guarantee you it's worth the money <laughs> i endorse that <laughs> oh, so, in terms of an, another book yeah yes i want to write another book right now i am thinking through how and what angle i want to take so i'm really in the conceptualization phase and that mm -hmm. can i have a lot of ideas so maybe there would be more than one book but i can't tell you how soon i would love to say within the next two to three years you'll see mm -hmm. another book and maybe i should just say that so that you can right put it right it. so i can hold you hold you accountable not just me clearly the listeners as well exactly so within the next three years you'll see some kind of book and it will not be a coloring book <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Dr. Haynes, for sharing with us today. Definitely, you have given us more than enough food for thought today. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this, and I look forward to listening to the full series of podcasts. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join us every other Wednesday for another episode of Shack Shack. Subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcast platform. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can also connect with us on IG, Facebook, and Twitter, or by email at akilia at Let's shake things up.